I'm not saying that that Dev was was able to walk in the water. <laughs> he brought us very near to it. Sean McEntee, a friend and colleague of Eamon de Valera for almost 60 years, a member of every Fianna Fáil cabinet led by de Valera, with him a founder member of Fianna Fáil, like him a 1916 veteran, and like him sentenced to death for his role in the Easter Rising, and reprieved. In fact, it was in the workroom in Dartmoor Prison in England, after the Rising, that de Valera and McEntee first discussed politics, at their first meeting. McEntee had just come off a month's solitary confinement when he first met the man who was to change his life. In the month of his 93rd birthday this past summer, Sean McEntee recalled Eamon de Valera, his career, his personality, his achievements, his disappointments. Mr McEntee, it was a summer's day in July 1917 that you first met Eamon de Valera, but in unique circumstances. Well, I think it was a summer's day. I don't remember. I wasn't impressed by the weather because in Dartmoor it's nothing but it's a very drab sort of place, even in summertime. Uh, but I, it was. Did you know who he was then? Well, I, I did when I, because I had seen photographs of him, but I had never met him before, uh, before that June in Dartmoor. So we marched off and uh, into this huge room. It, it could hold at least a hundred prisoners sitting on benches, divided some at intervals of, the, of two feet at least between them, so that you couldn't, if you wanted to talk audibly, you had to you'd have to raise your voice and be heard. And uh, I was sat down, put down on a bench in front of a a man who was peddling away thorough, industriously, put it that way, on, on, on a sewing machine. And then after a bit, I, he, he, he said, who are you? And uh, that's sort of book to you, you know, you have to talk to you without moving your lips. It's an art which you acquire. And uh, I told him I was. And then when he heard that I was in Belfast, he started talking about Belfast. And uh, what impressed me was how little he knew about it. And uh, Dev was surprised to find that though I was, uh, had been in the volunteers and the rising, that I had a great admiration for Joe Devlin. And I had because uh, until Joe came along and became MP for West Belfast, elected by a majority of 16 votes, the, the northern nationalists, the northern Catholics who were mainly nationalists, were completely ground down. So they were surprised that, that I should have such an admiration for him. And I had, and, and, uh, and then we got on talking. But the real thing about it was that what, what uh, well, it didn't surprise me, because after all, how could it? That People knew so little about the northern situation, northern scene. You were whispering then to de Valera across the table uh, yeah. in the workshop yeah. in Dartmoor. Was, were you in the same seating for a couple of days? Oh, no, for all the period that Dev was there. But you see, we had nothing to talk about once we got over the preliminaries. And once we realised that Devlin wasn't as black as he was painted, 
also you were on record as saying that you that he, his belief then was that the whole problem in the north was due to British guile and nothing else. Yes, he was. He was only that. That's true. But nobody who lived in Belfast, had grown up in Belfast, believed that. Had you any idea then that your career, your public career, uh, would be so intertwined with this man across the table? Oh, not. Not forever. I know none would happen. You see, I... Uh, well, when I was released from, from Tartan Road, when Mulgrew released, I was, we were first of all transferred from Tartan Road to Lewis, and then we were dispersed. I was released in Portland. But, uh, but when we were, when we came back home, of course, we found the whole situation had changed. And Des election, the candidature in East Clare had been declared, and we went down to help. And so we're drawn into politics, uh, and that's the way it came. I hadn't any idea of a political career in 1916 when I went into the volunteers. It just happened that destiny shaped my ends. But you were very active in the East Clare by-election and in the South Armagh by-election. I was, yes. And you went on a, an organising tour, a Sinn Féin organising tour of Tyrone, Derry, uh, and Donegal well, with De Valera. Oh yes, yes. In I the did. early 1918. Yes. Well, what did you find that out? Well, it's reported in the local newspapers yeah. at the time. I became very close to Des during that period. In fact, I was the uh, 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 how do you put it? The, I created the original prototype of Des' long coat in the train. You see, you wrapped it across your knees and so on. You were comfortable. So Dev. Dev saw me wearing one of these and he followed suit. It's the only time he imitated me. What was de Valera like then as a public speaker in that time? At, at that time, he, he was less in time to be the doctrinaire, the teacher. He, he, he did, but then, then he was, uh, at that time, he, he, he certainly devoted himself entirely, almost entirely, to the question, the big question then was, would we be represented at the peace conference, which was to be held when the war ended, and and uh, it, he was really um, more concerned to establish and to vindicate the Easter Rising. It is fortunate that the question of the recognition of the Republic arises at this time. It is doubly fortunate that America is strong enough to decide upon it boldly, without fear, in the way its conscience prompts. Ireland's cause is not Ireland's cause only, it is the cause of the world. It is the cause of right and of justice and of true democracy everywhere. De Valera in the United States, 1920. He returned from there at Christmas of that year after 18 months in America. 1921 was a year of political strategy. July brought the truce and talks in London with Lloyd George. Throughout October and November, the plenipotentiaries were negotiating with the British cabinet in London. On December the 6th, the treaty was signed. Sinn Féin divided on the issue, but few of those contributing to the historic debate on the treaty in the Dáil emphasised partition. It was virtually ignored. Everybody was sold. And those, most of those who participated in the debate were oversold on the idea that the Boundary Commission was going to reduce the six 
the, the seceding counties. It's six counties that lost him to a non-viable state. McEntee's own predictions, warnings, that the treaty would entrench partition, proved more prophetic. The Civil War followed through the winter of 1922-23. The Republicans accepted their failure to make advances through military means. But they did not accept defeat. Rather, they determined to turn to politics as an extension of war by other means. They had their own underground army, Doyle, and civil administration, but these proved ineffective. From 1925, at least, there were broad hints, some evidence, that a more pragmatic approach might be tried. The collapse of the Boundary Commission in November-December 1925 hastened this development. By March 1926, de Valera and his followers, including McEntee, had split with Sinn Féin. In May of that year, Fianna Fáil was founded. I put it to Sinn Féin all this. I put then that as a national policy. It was turned down and there was nothing left for us to do. Those who believed that we could to a large extent retrieve the national fortunes then to found a new organisation. They founded Fianna Fáil. De Valera wrote to a friend about the new party. What will be the fate of this new venture, I do not know. I have at any rate done my duty and launched the ship on the sea of fate. If favourable winds blow, I may bring her safely to harbour. If not, well, I'm prepared to go down trying. For its first year, Fianna Fáil was an abstentionist party. It did not enter Leinster House. It fought the June 1927 election as an abstentionist party. And it was only after the assassination of Kevin O'Higgins and the consequent legislation, which obliged all parliamentary candidates to take the oath if they wished to contest elections, it was only in these new circumstances that Fianna Fáil faced the inevitable. They accepted the oath in August 1927 as an empty formula, and they entered Leinster House. But we did certainly know that we couldn't make any progress on the basis which we were doing. Uh, it remained to be seen that, that, that uh, how good... How sound were our anticipations? And we did expect that we would certainly do better going into the door than staying out of the door, because after all, you can't expect people to continue to vote, to, to vote into, into, into Parliament. People have no influence. Fianna Fáil's gains in the election, which took place the following month, the September 1927 election, were some indication of the public support for their new pragmatism. Nonetheless, they remained, in Sean Lamass's phrase in the Dáil, a slightly constitutional party. When the next election came in January 1932, Fianna Fáil was successful. De Valera, in less than a decade, had reversed the outcome of the Civil War. Some asked whether the victors in the Civil War would accept their defeat at the ballot box. Some Fianna Fáil members entering Leinster House after the 1932 election to inherit the fruits of their victory also had doubts, and some took precautions. Are the stories, though, of Fianna Fáil coming into power that day in the Dáil with, with guns in their back pockets, are they true? Well, that's due to Frank Aiken. <laughs> Frank Aiken was very distrustful. Frank, Frank Aiken probably... Uh, no, there's the, the, nothing more than that. We came in. I was handed a revolver, but I wasn't handed any cartridges. <laughs> the, the revolver wasn't for use, but it was for an intimidation. 
It will be the dawn of a new day for Ireland. Our people in the United States, in Britain, in Australia, will know a gladness they have not experienced since 1921. But it, this was a new dawn, wasn't it? I mean, Fianna Fáil, the oh, expectations were very considerable within the party. Uh, what did they see? It was, it was, made, made, it was made what? Unduly uh, reward anybody who invested in your business. And it took a lot. And of course, we had to train our people. One of the points, again, that some of the Fianna Fáil, the expectations within the party seems to have been that once de Valera got to power then, that you were inheriting a civil service machine that had been staffed by, from Cumann and Gale, patronage, if you like, or they were professionals too, and the army likewise. Now, how difficult was it to take over the machinery of government since you had been outside it? So well, I, I, I was an into finance and supposed to be in that capacity responsible for the civil service. The only department which any question arose, well, there were two. With justice, where there was a, a certain you know, a degree of financial, of political distrust. Now, whether the distrust was well, I don't think the distrust was well founded, but distrust <laughs> rises outside of your control. And uh, uh, the army, for a moment, but as, a, as against that, we knew, well, uh, the guards, O'Duffy. Now, we knew that O'Duffy had been, as I said, we knew that's too strong a word, but we suspected that O'Duffy had tried plan a coup d'etat to keep us from coming in, and that Michael Brennan, who was chief of staff, refused to cooperate. Now, Michael Brennan was unfair. Now, he was the chief of staff. So the army came over, and old W.T. Cosgrave refused to have anything to do with any sort of proposal of keeping us out of power. Now that that's so we we, we made it. We, it only indicates the, the the degree of political mouth that the Irish people had. Picking at the fight though with England, then the economic war, there were political advantages to that, weren't there? Well, yes, there was. Of course, you see, after all, we are in a position to say to the Irish farmers, who are providing the bulk of the annuities, you stand by us on this. Well, you're going to benefit, and they. But look, that wasn't the main appeal. The main appeal is, look, when it comes down to hard facts, patriotic, the Irish man is as patriotic as any other man you'll find anywhere, and we and is prepared to sacrifice as much, uh, as much <laughs> as the most sacrificial. What was de Valera's view then, at that point, coming into power, of the, the political stability in the state, because the IRA was then very strong. It was part of it saw de Valera as a potential Kerensky, a man who would take power but who could be pushed aside in certain circumstances. Uh, there was the rise of the blue shirts. They were, uh, and well, so they on. Came, they came from north. They, they were not, not of the same lineage. Yes. That's uh, my point, that there were, on all sides, there were, there were difficulties. Well, there were. Of course there were, but what the government there except to surmount civil difficulties. Now, you can't surmount economic difficulties. That's a fallacy that every that the, the government operates in a vacuum and that they can do whatever you like inside it. No, it's a no, but, but, but uh, certainly, as uh, so far as the political uh, issues were concerned, uh, we ha I had a solve. But you see, don't forget, we didn't take, when we did take power in 1932, as a minority government, 
1933 when we had played the card. Now I'm not saying play in the in the in the in the, in the what you might call as pejorative sense. When we had laid down, when we had abolished the oath. Well, you know that made an extraordinary difference, and with that they knew it did. I mean, we had a very good election in 1933. The economic war with Britain, while resulting in some economic difficulties in Ireland, did have political advantages for Fianna Fáil. Rowing with the ancient enemy went down well with Republican voters, particularly those concerned with Fianna Fáil's credentials as the mainstream Republican Party. The abolition of the oath, the humiliation and then abolition of the office of Governor-General, the abolition of the Privy Council, of the Free State Senate, all helped consolidate nationalist Republican support behind Fianna Fáil, as did the External Relations Act in December 1936, by which the King was excluded from the Constitution. If the British had had any doubts about de Valera's revision of the treaty since his arrival in power in 1932, it must have been clear by now that de Valera was intending to do no less than incrementally to introduce document number two, his celebrated alternative to the treaty, which had been rejected in the aftermath of the treaty debate 15 years before. External association with the British Commonwealth, de Valera's bespoke formula, was also intended as bait for the Ulster Unionists. All right, it was a, an, a, an attempt to have, had to have regard to the feelings of the Ulster Unions and that, and that they hoped that this would manage that the... There's no doubt he had that in his mind, but I can't say what was in his mind, but, cause, but, uh, but it, it, it certainly was. You see, it, it, he, had, he had mentioned external association, during the course of the treaty debates. How fine an appreciation had he by now, in your view, of the intractability of the partition issue? I don't think he had. I, 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 I think that all the time he felt that the British were supporting and upholding the the six county people, the six county establishment. He he didn't. I don't think that he realised how innate their desire to be associated with their co-religionists in Great Britain. He didn't realise how strong that was. Now I I remember my only a thin recollection. I remember that. Erskine Childers, uh, Erskine Childers Sr. He said to me once that Erskine Childers had told him that it wasn't a matter so much of political allegiance as of religion. 
religious conviction that they were they didn't want that the Northerners didn't want to be under the thumb of the uh, of, of, of Rome, and you know in those days when John Charles and others were rampant, uh, there was a great. Now I shouldn't say rampant about John Charles because he was a man of very sincere convictions. But there was um, a very strong Catholic influence in the political culture of the South then. Oh, there it? was. Yeah. Oh, there was. Sure, that's when we had Christ the King and uh, Maria Ducci. Maria Ducci was one, but another one. However, it doesn't matter now. But these were lobbying during the. Uh, preparation for the new constitution as well and there was a lobby suggesting there should be a state that the catholic church should be the state church yes well of course they wouldn't have that though one or two to my surprise one or two members of the, of the government at that stage were quite prepared to consider it to advocate it or consider it oh consider it they wouldn't have it at all by the way, myself and Jerry Bowen and a few others, Frank Aiken. <laughs> the outstanding event of the year was the adoption by the people of a constitution based on their own Christian conception of life, embodying their own political, social, and cultural ideals, and providing the framework for future development in accordance with the national genius and tradition. To Britain's surprise, since they believed the Constitution had set back the prospects for an improvement in Anglo-Irish relations, still less any North-South rapprochement, to Britain's surprise, de Valera, late in 1937, proposed a full-scale review of Anglo-Irish relations. Neville Chamberlain, by then Prime Minister, accepted. The records of these negotiations from January to March of 1938 and the agreement itself in April show how, on the Irish side, one man did almost all the talking. De Valera. Very little was said by the other Irish ministers who attended the negotiations, Sean Lemass, James Ryan and Sean McEntee. Of course, you can't have it. You can't have people talking across. Well, there were all interjections. You can't have people talking across purposes in the delegation. One man, the delegation decides what the line is going to be. Well, it doesn't decide it in that abrupt sense. But there's a discussion afterwards about what's happened in the morning and what you're going to do the next day. And you see, the leader of the delegation is the person who's the spokesman for the delegation. Now, on occasions, if you look, if you, if you think the thing's not going in the way you think it should go and there's going to be a diversion, you throw in an old remark and you try and get them by the line. But uh, that's all. Now, that reminds me. They talk of Neville Chamberlain as being an appeaser. Now, we were in, we, I was over in that delegation with, 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 with uh, Chamberlain. And we were talking about getting back the ports. And uh, <laughs> Dev was making the poor mouth about it, how much it was going to cost us. But and Chamberlain came in this spry remark of his about, you know, if it's going to cost you so much, Mr. Tavalier, perhaps you'd like to do without the ports. <laughs> but anyhow, we were talking about how much it was going to cost us, because this had to come in the financial end of it, uh, how much it was going to cost us 
uh, to put the, the re revitalize the force and rearm them and so on and modernize them. And uh, I said to uh, we were to question those as to when this would have to be done. And uh, the amount of money this was going to cost. And I said to Chamberlain, who was then Minister Prime Minister, I said to Chamberlain, now when do you expect that uh, the, the, the situation is going to uh, come to a head? Well, he said, if you ask me, Mr. Magnitsky, I'd say if I were, if I were Mr. Hitler, I'd strike now because we are completely unprepared. Now, that's the, that's the explanation in Munich. Following the 1938 agreement, de Valera's greatest difficulty was in persuading his followers, including some TDs and some members of his cabinet, that no progress on partition had been possible at the London talks. But it was now emphasised in Fianna Fáil rhetoric that the partition issue had been isolated, that in all other respects the Anglo-Irish relationship was as it should be. And Neville Chamberlain permitted Fianna Fáil to carry on a propaganda campaign in Britain on the partition issue. We always said, oh, said, look, we can't do it. But if you can move our people, he, he, he said, my opinion, partition is an anachronism. And he welcomed us and he advised us to go out. Uh, and he didn't advise us. He said, you can convert the Irish and the British people. You'll have no opposition from me. And... And we founded the Anti-Partition League on that basis. And then there came the Gloucester bombings and the other things. And uh, it, uh, that makes me very doubtful about the bomber treaties or some of the things that happened since that. Soon enough, the context was changed. War was declared in Europe. The emergency was proclaimed in Ireland. Noting the march of events, your government decided its policy early last spring and announced its decision to you and to the world. We resolved that the aim of our policy would be to keep our people out of the war. Whatever else happened, we wanted to come out of the war independent and we certainly didn't want to back any loser. And there was a time, obviously, in the summer of 1940, when every American journalist returning from Europe and half the British cabinet yes. believed that Britain was going to lose. Yes, yes, of course, that was at a prime time. <laughs> we had a, and it would have been, from my point of view, a, a, and I think of the majority of my colleagues, would be a disaster to us if Britain were to lose the war. Because after all, what bulwark are we between the continent and ourselves? We would be over if if if, the, if any European power were able to overrun Britain, where would we be? And uh, you uh, try to let people feel that you are on the right side, whatever you didn't say what side it was, but our side was to keep out of the war nothing else. We had only one objective. Uh, I mean, whatever our mental approach might be, coming down to the practical work of running this state, we had to keep out of the war. We had already lost too many men in, in the previous war. And apart from that, 
we had achieved our independence. This was the test of it, whether we could go through that war and come out of it, emerge from it, independent. And that was our job. But it was very much, I suppose, I don't know, like one of the biblical stories about <laughs> the boat on the lake when the storm sprang up. <laughs> I'm not saying that that Dev was, was able to walk in the water. <laughs> he brought us very near to it. How real, though, within the, the cabinet then in the summer of 1940 was the fear of the possibility of a German landing in Ireland? Well, it was always present. I mean, uh, when, 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 when the British were driven out of Europe, the possibility that the Germans would try to land, and you see, they, they had their don't forget, they had sent in their spies before that, and they, they were preparing the ground, and there, there was a certain crowd here uh, uh, who uh, believed in the authoritarian state. Uh, there were some very prominent nationalists among them uh, who, who were quite prepared to, to, to invite them in. Well, that was all right because they didn't. Perhaps it was because they didn't believe in democracy. I don't know, but there were there was there were there were some. I'm not mentioning their names because they're all dead and they can't repudiate me. So you're saying that within the Fianna Fáil cabinet, then in the summer of 1940, there was this genuine worry and concern that th that there might be an invasion of Ireland. Oh yes, oh yes, there was. It was on the cards. Now, who was going to invade us? Some thought it would be from the British. Others thought that the Germans, with all their submarines and so on, every, every you know, the human mind is prone to exaggeration. And uh, those who saw the Germans sweeping across Europe said that no battery there had come here. That they weren't. They weren't numerous. Well, some who thought that after Dunkirk, the Germans would be in our country, and they were civil servants. They weren't politicians. Uh, now that's as far as I'm going. And in external uh, affairs. Uh, in external affairs. Very senior. Right. Very senior people. Well. I, we weren't, we, we, we didn't hear from the juniors. And as well as that, there, there's one fact that we have to abide with. Whatever we like it or not, Britain is one bulwark against a, a European <laughs> invasion. Now, that's one fact. We, they, they lie between us and the continent. And after all, the Romans came to Britain, and they didn't get past Britain, and where would we be? We'd be more holier than the Romans are now. As the first facts of history are geographical. Yes, that's it. You are. You have to stand where you are. You have to die where you stand. Put it that way. There's a community which has been mercifully spared from all major sufferings, as well as from the blinding hates and rancors engendered by the present war, we shall endeavor to render thanks to God by playing a Christian part in helping so far as a small nation can to bind up 
some of the gaping wounds of suffering humanity. De Valera's achievement as national leader during the war gave him a stature which he had not known since 1921, pre-treaty. Neutrality had been elevated to a sacred principle by much of the electorate. Yet as with Churchill in Britain, at the first post-war election, office was lost by the man who had proved such a popular leader during the war. How disappointed was de Valera at his loss of power in 1948 after 16 continuous years in office? Well, he was. Know, he wasn't as harsh as some of his higher civil servants were. I remember Jimmy McGilley coming in to me on the day that Dale was defeated. And he was in tears, weeping. They were, they were, they were, they were horrified at the idea that we were judging. But you see, we had done all the dirty work, the rationing and so on and so on. And people, after all, you get tired. You like a change. Even if it's only a change of hat or shirt. <laughs> so that's what happened. 16 years of one government. They say we try the other fellows now. And what was, what was your verdict on the other fellows after three years? They had the mother and child scheme... Which was the mother and child scheme was our scheme. That's just forgotten. Oh, I know that, and you brought it through, and you delivered it past uh, the, 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 the obstacles. But I'm saying that the, the method of wh in which it ended up w was a, a debit, wasn't it? Well, of course. Uh, <laughs> it blew the gaff on, on, the, on the unity of Crown Republican. And then the repeal of the External Relations Act. A lot of their... Oh, that was, that was a disaster. I mean, not a disaster, that's an exaggeration, but it was certainly a disadvantage because, look, as long as we had that there, it was a cobweb, and the British had to make sure that the cobweb didn't break. The leader of the opposition and the dial, David at a monster, all-party rally in O'Connell Street in Dublin, de Valera joined Costello McBride and Norton in condemning the Ireland Act, the British government's new guarantee to the Ulster Unionists. Britain has created this position. Britain has maintained this position. By the bill in our parliament today, she is seeking to consolidate it. The design must be opposed by the Irish race by every means that is effective and just. Fianna Fáil returned to power in 1951 for three years and again after another period of coalition in 1957, de Valera returned for his last term as Taoiseach. Sean McEntee served in both these governments. McEntee resigned from the Cabinet in 1969 and from the Dáil in 1973, the same year in which de Valera retired from public life uh, when he completed his second term as president. Looking back then over almost 60 years of friendship and political cooperation, how would Sean McEntee sum up Eamon de Valera? How can I sum up, how can I sum up Dev in three or four sentences? I can't, because, you see, in my mind, he looms larger than life. Well, that's... Again, uh, uh, an exaggeration in the sense that he was life. He wasn't large and he was just it. He was, a, he was, a, he was really a very upright, simple, unostentatious man, though very serious in, in his thought. 
he never jumped to a conclusion. I mean, if I, I remember there were, when we were on occasions in the early days, before, ni when, uh, before 1939, before the war broke out, when we were doing the amending the Constitution. How we would have a long discussion in par in the in the cabinet during that period when people were tense and thinking hard, and you go home thinking when you'd been disposed of, and you'd find yourself summoned to a meeting because somebody now like a person I'm not going to mention had said something which Dev thought was relevant to the thing and hadn't been given sufficient attention, and you'd be brought back to consider it. He never disregarded an opinion. It was offered to him, but and he analyzed it, and he judged it, and decided whether it was good or bad. But the thing, of course, he, he, if he made up his mind and that, it was very hard to get him to unmake it. It wasn't that he was stubborn, but you had to have the have a whole a logical argument, something which would stand up. And but in ordinary, that's it. That's uh, that's the it was in the cabinet, and in the cabinet, everybody had an equal voice. Now we we had no votes in the cabinet. We had an expression of opinion. We go round the table. Somebody would say something, and then uh, persons have an, an opportunity of answering that, and then Deb would sort of. And generally, almost, univers almost universally, his consensus was accepted as the voice of as the voice of the cabinet. Now we didn't have any votes because it wasn't the voice of the people. Mr. Lamass, of course, told the joke that you took a vote by a minority of one, i.e. de Valera had his way. That's, that's not exactly true. It is a, an oversimplification of the fact that de Valera presented a consensus of opinion which was acceptable to the majority without the majority having to disclose itself. You know what I mean? You don't have to say, yes, I'm formed. So, which is, as a, a divider procedure. So that was the end cabinet. Now, as a friend, as as a man, he wasn't a chap who went out of his way to make jokes. But if you made a joke and it was good enough, he would enjoy it as much as anybody else, provided it didn't get over the border. Now he didn't like anything which was too blue. He didn't mind it being a, a pale blue line, a metal blue, if you know what I mean. He didn't mind that at all. You could say things like that to him. He'd make jokes about it. But but he was very, he was he was he was a, as I, I think I said to you before, he, he really a friend. I, I I recited Jerry Bowles so many times because Jerry was a, a typical Dubliner, and Jerry would talk to them and say, "Come off it," or something like that. And they wouldn't say it in a rude way, and then would come off. She laughed. But there's no, it's no rubbish. You look at myself and Deb, many stand up, and so is Lamar, so, so is Jim Ryan and, and Paddy Smith. 
now got dead and gone. I don't know what I said. But Paddy, Paddy Smith and Dad, they, they talk like two countrymen talking to each other. Oh, no. No. You see, the thing about it was the, the general public, the, the, the population, erected Dad. And it wasn't, he didn't seek this, but it wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't talked about. It was it was uh, sub imposed. <laughs> if you put, I can't find the word, but he was he was elevated. How disappointed would you say he was at the end of his life at, at the failure of some of his central goals, the unity of the country and the restoration of the language? Oh, very disappointed about the restoration of the language. <coughs> very. I'd say that. I'd say that about the other. He began to realise that the, 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 how difficult the task was and how he was going to represent, as, as, as it will in the end, represent a certain perversion, of course, on our part. Because, you see, there can't be unity without a meeting of hands. And somebody's got to, <laughs> the, the meeting has got to be arranged some way. <laughs> Well, can't be, can't both be going uh, on opposition courses uh, in the sense that we're both receding from each other. When we start around, and make, uh, we have to make the turn and seek a union. It's going to be very difficult, but it mightn't be so difficult because the world will impose it upon us. So he saw that, you think, at the end of his life. I think he saw at the end of his life. He, he, he told, and I told you about Erskine's relatives. Telling me, tell me, the dad said to me, look, Erskine always told me that I was on the wrong track. When it wasn't the British, it was the solid block of followers of John Knox and followers of, of Henry VIII, who, or of Elizabeth I, who didn't, were afraid of Rome. It was the old British. Uh, it, 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 they had carried it over with them from Great Britain, if you like, but after all, they've been here 400 years in Ireland. I wonder how long the Celts were before they... <laughs> a great man, you said of de Valera, and Moses even, who led a small people out of bondage. That's my true opinion. And he did. Who else created... Uh, there's such an organisation as being a fall, which endured... 50 years and more, nearly 60 now, without a split. What's going to happen in the future, I'm not foretelling. But imagine that. I mean, look at, and we started with nothing. I mean, the people who were the rank and file, who were they? Not only the rank and file, but the, the commissioned officers and so on, in seeing the fall we started. The fellows who had the six, one signal to rub against another. They come out of the internment camp with no business no job, no anything, and no dole. But that, but that was that, but that was the spirit of the country. Sean McEntee, remembering the career of Eamon de Valera. The interview was recorded last August in the month of Mr. McEntee's 93rd birthday. <laughs> I'm not saying that that Dev was, was able to walk in the water, but I, he, he brought us very near to it.